Amen. So this morning we are continuing our series in the book of First Peter. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there with me a while. A while is something you say if you're from central Pennsylvania to say, in the meantime, uh, I, I realize I say that without realizing it sometimes, but um, you can turn in your Bibles there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under your chair or the chair next to you. We're going to be on page 1016 in those Bibles in First Peter chapter 4. Last week, we started to talk about this topic of suffering, and Peter brings this up in his letter. And it's not a particularly fun topic to talk about generally. Uh, many of you this morning perhaps came to church thinking, okay, I'm going to get up, I'm going to avoid the Philly Marathon traffic even and find a way to get here. And you're hoping to leave encouraged and uplifted, uh, which is a reasonable expectation. And then I'm up here saying, hey, guess what we're going to talk about today? Suffering. Um, there is good news to be had in the midst of it, but uh, we talk about it because the Bible talks about it. And the Bible talks about it because the Bible is not just a book of inspirational sayings or uh, positive thinking. It's a book about real life. And you don't have to have lived for very long to know that suffering is something that tends to find you in some way at some point in your lives. And God talks about it also because he wants us to be ready for it. He wants us to be prepared. So last week we looked at how do you plan for your future if you know that difficulty is going to be included in your future. I shared the hypothetical story. If I have a friend who's moving here from Texas, I would be really excited for him because I think he's getting an upgrade moving to Philadelphia from Texas. However, I, I, so, I, so I would tell him about all the good things he's going to come into. I'm going to tell him about the cool restaurants. I'm going to tell him about the sports teams, which aren't very good right now, but are very entertaining to watch, and I enjoy the fact that we can go to games. Um, there's things about Philly that I tell him that, that I love. But I'd also want to warn him. I want to tell him, like, we have days like today where there's wind and it's really cold and you're going to want a jacket. And so maybe he plans for his future and he says, okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a jacket. Um, But sometimes you may know that theoretically, yeah, it's going to get cold someday. And yet you walk out on that 20 degree day and you're like, whoa, I didn't realize it was going to be this bad. Um, and, And that's kind of how difficulty can work in our lives. That's how suffering can be. We know in theory, yeah, the world's not a perfect place. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Someday I may suffer. But what do we do when that suffering becomes a reality? When it goes from being a theoretical, that might happen in the future, to now I'm actually experiencing it. When my friend from Texas walks outside in January and it's 20 degrees, what's he going to do? Well, there's a few things that he could do. You know, if it surprises him, if it catches him off guard, um, he may say, whatever, I just have to live here. I hate winters. There's going to be another three months of this. This sucks. And kind of just grit his teeth and push through it and the whole time be hating Philadelphia in his heart. But whatever, I have to stay, so I'll do it. Or he could say, babe, let's get the next flight back to Texas. we got to get out of here. But what if he knows that it's actually the best thing for him to stay in Philadelphia, which, again, I would agree with. And, and so he says, I, I know we need to stay here. Well, he actually has another option in that moment. He can put his jacket on. He can put his jacket on and go outside. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning. How do you put your jacket on? You've prepared for the future, but now that the suffering is here, how do we actually go to God in the midst of it? And the answer this passage is going to give us is to trust God and do good when you suffer. Trust God and do good when you suffer. And there's three reasons we're going to look at for why you can trust God and do good when you suffer. The first is that his glory is coming. The second is that his glory is present. And the third is that his judgment is here with it as well. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read up through verse 19. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So first reason you can trust God and do good when you suffer is that his glory is coming. If you look at the first two verses in our passage, verses 12 and 13, it says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And then in verse 13, but rejoice. So instead of walking out in the 20 degree weather, instead of when suffering comes, um, being surprised at it, rejoice. Now that's a very unnatural response to suffering. First thing that comes to our mind isn't usually rejoicing. And so it's really important that we have these reasons given in this passage for why that can happen. And this is what he says. He says, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's something about the way we respond to suffering right now that prepares us for when Jesus' glory is going to be revealed. There's something about rejoicing now when trials come that gets us ready to rejoice when Jesus returns. Now, to really make sense of that, we have to back up a little bit and do a little background. What's this talk of Jesus' glory being revealed? Well, if you rewind just a verse to verse 11 here, Peter says something um, important about Jesus. He says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And what's particularly interesting about that is it's in the present tense. So Peter is saying, at the very time when he writes this letter, to Jesus belong glory and dominion. And then he adds, forever and ever. Which means today, even as we're reading this letter, even as I'm speaking to you, Jesus has all glory and all dominion over all things. Now, how can he say that? And how can we say that when we look at the world around us and it doesn't seem like the glory of Jesus is the thing that's driving everything? It doesn't seem like everyone would readily acknowledge that. Well, when we say something is glorious, we're saying something about an intrinsic quality that it has, something that's inherent in and of itself, whether or not people actually acknowledge it. So those of you who are familiar with artwork are familiar with this concept. You know there's pieces of art that just by its nature, it has a beauty or a value to it inherent in and of itself, even though many people might look at it and say, I don't see what's so special about it. Um, I've never seen the Sistine Chapel, but that doesn't change the fact that the Sistine Chapel is glorious in and of itself. So Jesus has this glory in and of himself, even though we don't currently see it. And, and the story of the Bible, the reason that he's called glorious, is because of what he did when he was here on earth. So when Jesus comes to earth, he lives this perfect life, and yet experiences suffering in the midst of it. That's one of the main things we're going to see in this passage, is that the suffering you experience is actually similar and shared with the suffering that Jesus experienced. 
And because he suffered, because he willingly died, and because ultimately he was killed as a criminal and willing to lay down his life and in a sense lay down his glory, after he died, God rose him from the dead and gave him this glory. That The Bible describes it that Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father after he was risen from the dead. He's given the ultimate place of honor in the whole universe. Meaning that right now, Jesus has more glory than the wisest thinker. Jesus has a more exalted position than the most powerful king in the world. And he is more beautiful than the most beautiful piece of artwork in existence. And yet it's just a reality that we don't see it fully. We don't look out. We don't wake up every morning and just say, ah, Jesus is glorious. Because right now his glory is hidden. And what Peter is saying is that a day is coming when that will no longer be the case. A day is coming when his glory is revealed. And in the midst of suffering, rejoicing now as trials come prepares us to rejoice when that glory is revealed. I'm not a concert goer, but I know many of you are. I've been to three concerts, three concerts in my life. My first one was Kanye West at Penn State. Um, that's, that's back before he got really off the rails. It was still just like making fun of George Bush and stuff, and now it's a whole other level. But anyway, uh, I'm not a big concert goer, and, and a band that I know a lot of my friends are a big fan of is 21 Pilots, and they kind of started small, and a lot of people go to like local shows, but now they've really blown up. So imagine they're coming to town, and their concert is going to cost $100, and you decide, yeah, I want to go, and I'm going to take you know, my husband or my wife to their concert. So you're dropping $200 on the 21 Pilots concert, and it's six months away. But you know that in order to go to that concert, in order to put down the $200, you're going to have to say no to all the other concerts between now and that time. And you're willing to do it because you say they're that much better than all these other concerts. But what's going to happen two weeks from then when some friends are like, hey, you get a big show over at Union Transfer tonight, you want to come? And you have to say, Ugh, I can't, I already spent all my concert money and your friends are kind of like, oh, come on, it'll be a good time. So you're missing out on the chance to hang out with them. You're missing out on the chance to hear this cool band. Um, you can be surprised. <laughs> you can say, oh, crap, I didn't realize it was actually going to cost me not being able to go to all these other things. And you can respond in a couple ways. Um, one that's common is it, that we talked about earlier is there can be a bitterness. You know, like, fine, I guess I can't go to all these concerts. And um, what you're going to start doing is kind of cultivating a hatred <laughs> For 21 pilots, right? You're going to say, look at what they're costing me. I have to give up going to all these other concerts. And then they have this glory now. They're already great, but you're waiting for the day when it'll be revealed, when it'll be in front of you. And by the time you get there, you're going to be so angry with them that they're going to get on stage and you're going to say, oh, so you're the guys who have been costing me all these great concerts over the last six months. You're not ready to rejoice and be glad when, when the band starts playing. Or you can say, um, you know what? I have these tickets, but let's, let's just sell them. I know I can get maybe a few more dollars for them, and then I can go to all these concerts in the meantime. And you won't even be there to see it when their glory is revealed. Think about that when, when you think about trials coming into your life. If we receive them with a spirit of bitterness, if we say, fine, God, I'll keep obeying you in the midst of this trial, you're actually cultivating hatred for God. Such that when his glory is revealed, he's the guy who cost you all that stuff instead of the Jesus who is glorious. Or you say, you know what? It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it to follow Jesus in the midst of this trial. 
if I can disobey him and get rid of the suffering, get rid of the trial that I'm experiencing, I'll take that. I'll sell my tickets, and then I don't have to lose and miss out on all these things in between. And you won't be able to rejoice and be glad when the glory of Jesus is actually revealed. Do you see how rejoicing now would be different than both of those responses? It can be confusing to read a passage like this, to read, trial's coming, and you're rejoicing. Like, how can those both happen at the same time? And sometimes we take this and do weird things with it, where it's like, what it means is, it shouldn't hurt at all. So you're suffering, and it hurts? Think positive thoughts. Jesus' glory is going to be revealed. Calm down. It's going to be okay. You ever have that experience? You're telling someone, like, hey, this thing's been really hard, and you feel like, let me just think about how to get negative thoughts out of your mind immediately. And, well, it, you know, um, life's going to work out, and, and there's a plan, and it's really going to be okay, so stop crying, okay? You're making me uncomfortable. That's not what God does. The two exist side by side. The trial is there, and so is the rejoicing. The Apostle Paul is another early Christian, a contemporary of Peter's. He described himself once as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful? He didn't say, sometimes I'm sorrowful, and on my good days I'm rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The two go hand in hand. Um, If you need a picture of this, you know, often I say things like this, and people wonder, and I wonder, what's it actually look like? Um, The Psalms are a great place to look for people who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, who are able to rejoice in the midst of trials. I'm going to read you one example from Psalm chapter 13. Starting, it'll be up on the screen behind me here. You don't have to turn there. Um, Psalm, Psalm 13, starting in verse 1. Psalm says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And look at what he says. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. See the two of those right next to each other? The trial. He's not hiding the trial. He says, um, I have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long? Will you forget me? It's not minimizing the pain that he's feeling. But he's, he's taking it to the Lord and talking to God about the pain that he's experiencing. And he's including with it rejoicing saying, yes, Lord, this trial is terrible, this trial is hard, but your glory, Lord Jesus, that's hidden now that will be revealed later is infinitely greater. Help me to remember that today. Yes, Lord, this trial is difficult, but your glory is worth it. I don't want to sacrifice rejoicing when your glory is revealed just to get rid of this trial. But this can be very difficult to do when the glory is all in the future, right? If, if the if the concert's six months away, and that's when the glory is going to be revealed, and the whole time those other concerts, you're passing up on them, you have to just keep saying, well, it's, it's coming, it's coming. That can really be difficult to do. And the good news is God doesn't leave us there because his glory is also present with us now in a different way. So that takes us to our next point. His glory is present. Look with me at the next verse in verse 14. It says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's interesting, the example that he gives here. You know, he says, fiery trials, and then the one that he goes to is if you are insulted for the name of Christ. Often when we read the Bible and we hear about trials, 
we think it's talking about real suffering. Like back then, these guys could have been killed for their faith. And, and, and throughout the world today, there's people experiencing way worse suffering than we're experiencing. And so we think the daily struggles that I have, because no one's pointing a gun to my head and telling, ask, telling me they're going to shoot me if I believe in Jesus, that the Bible doesn't really talk about those. It's not really about me. But the example that he gives here is actually much more similar to the kind of suffering you're likely to face. He just says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, if someone says something to you that's hurtful because of the name of Jesus in your life, that's probably the kind of suffering that most of you are going to experience here in America and in this world that we live in today. It's going to be some kind of pushback from the people around you because of your profession of faith in Christ or because you choose to obey Jesus in a particular way. For example, you may notice that you don't fit in with the people around you quite as well as you might if you chose to do some of the things that they do because you're choosing to obey Jesus in that area. I have a number of guys that I grew up with. They're kind of like family to me. Like we've been friends for, um, you know, since grade school. And a thing has happened where now some of them are starting to get married and they have a bachelor party. And I'm no longer getting invited to the bachelor parties because they know I was invited to one and I found out what was going to be happening at it and said, no, I, you know, out of obedience to Jesus, I don't feel like I can participate in that. And now I'm missing out. I'm missing out on an experience that's really key, you know, kind of a significant thing in these guys' lives. Um, and and that's, that's saddening for me, but it, it's, a, it's a way that people can um, exclude me from what's going on because of the name of Jesus. And that's hard for me. It's hard for me to feel like I'm not one of the guys um, because of my obedience to Jesus. So it may look like just getting pushed out of a friend group, not being invited to certain things, not being on the inner circle, not feeling like you belong. It may come out in a romantic relationship. You know that if you turn down your Christianity just a little bit, if you, if you let the Jesus thing go a bit, that this other person would be more interested in a relationship with you. Or you know that if you sacrifice Jesus' view of sex and were willing to engage in sexual immorality with this person, that they would affirm you and, and want to be with you. Um, so you may feel like your obedience to Jesus is preventing a relationship from happening. It may be in your company, in your workplace. Uh, some of you work in sales, and a friend of mine who works in sales was telling me that sometimes guys can be successful in sales if they're willing to make up stories and lie in order to build a connection with someone. So if someone shares a sad story about something that happened to their dog, and you can make up, oh man, that just happened to me like a year ago too, and it was so tough, wasn't it? And you're establishing an emotional connection, you have a better chance of making that sale, apparently. And your company may like that and promote you. And if you're the kind of person who won't do that, you may find it's harder to advance in your career. You may find your obedience to Jesus in resting regularly makes it harder for you to advance, that your boss doesn't like it. These are the kinds of insulted for the name of Jesus that you're likely to experience, that Christians are maybe made fun of in your workplace, and, and, but you're one of them, and you're there, and they're like talking about it. You're like, this is awkward. It, it's that kind of thing that Peter is actually addressing in this passage. This passage speaks to it. And here's what he says. If that kind of thing is happening to you, here's what he says. You are blessed. Right now, you're blessed if you're insulted for the name of Jesus. That is weird. <laughs> Why? You know, in what sense is that a blessing? Um, I think of 
on social media now, I, I am in the stage of life where a lot of friends are posting baby pictures or, you know, engagement, wedding photos, and you get the, like, 80th picture of their baby that week and hashtag blessed, you know, like, that's a, that, that's a blessing, right? How many of you would say, um, I got, my, my friends didn't invite me to a party, my boss demoted me, and the girl I liked dumped me, hashtag blessed, like, <laughs> Those two don't usually go hand in hand. And yet Peter can say, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And again, the reason is given. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The trial itself is not the blessing. The spirit of glory and of God resting upon you. That's the blessing. That's the thing he points us to in the midst of our trials. What the Spirit of glory does, this is referring to, it says the Spirit of God. This is the Holy Spirit. Um, What the Spirit does when he comes into your life, when he rests upon you, is he reveals the glory of Jesus to you. So you know the glory of Jesus is hidden now. It's going to be revealed later. What the Holy Spirit does is he gives you a taste of it right now. Because you get to experience relationship with God. The Holy Spirit is God himself dwelling in you. And that's why he's called the Spirit of glory. He's revealing something to you of the glory of Jesus. And you can see it by faith right now if the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So if you're insulted for the name of Jesus, what that means is you're a Christian. That's what happens to Christians. They, they experience the suffering that Jesus has experienced. And then you can realize that that means I have the spirit of glory and of God resting upon me. If you are insulted for the name of Jesus, that's what you have. You have God himself resting upon you and giving you a taste of what it's going to be like when that glory is revealed. It's like if you bought your tickets for the concert, and with your tickets they sent you an album that only the people going to that concert got to listen to. When you see all the concerts you're missing out on, what can you do? Put that album on and get a taste right now of how good and how much better this band is that you're, whose concert you're going to in six months than the one that you're missing out on is. And God's glory is so amazing that it makes all the other stuff you're missing out on look like a Nickelback concert or something. <laughs> if, if you like Nickelback, apologies. But um, it, it, it's that much better. And the problem we have is that we think all the stuff God gives us is better than God himself. So you're losing friends, so a relationship's not happening, so you've been insulted, so you're going down in popularity, and you're not advancing in your job because of Jesus. And you hear, but you have the spirit of glory and of God, and you're like, really? That's what I get? I wanted a job, I wanted the house, I wanted the friends. That's, do you hear what you're getting? <laughs> the spirit of glory. You're getting to know Jesus right now by the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. You're getting a taste of true glory. And we're worried because the stuff that he made is being taken away. You get the one who made it. You get a taste of him right now through the spirit of glory that dwells in you. When your comforts are taken away, you get the God of comfort. When that feeling of love is removed when people reject you, you get the God who loves perfectly. When your glory is tainted, because now you're not at the center. Now you're not being exalted. You get the spirit of glory. 
You get to look at the one who is actually glorious, the one who's actually worthy of all praise, the one who has all glory and all dominion. Now, at this point, he adds a a disclaimer for us in verse 15. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So to trust God and do good when you suffer, one of the first questions you have to ask is, am I part of the reason this suffering is here? These are kind of the Christians who usually make the news. Is like Christians who say stupid stuff, and then people call them stupid because what they said was stupid. And then a bunch of people rally around them and say, that's persecution. It's because the, the, the culture is just against Christians, and look at how they're treating this really Christian guy. That guy's not suffering because he's a Christian. He's suffering because he's an idiot. And he said something ridiculous and sinful, and now people think it's stupid because it is. That's not suffering in the name of Jesus. That's reaping what you sow. That's getting what you deserve. And so stop and consider, okay? Just if you're suffering, and we always do this. We always think if somebody insults me, if somebody wrongs me, I'm the righteous one in this interaction, and it must be because they're so unrighteous, and they just haven't seen how righteous I am yet. But if we're sinners, isn't it possible that I'm part of the problem? Like if somebody's insulting me, that perhaps I've brought that upon myself in some way? Have you ever stopped and considered that if you have conflict with this person, this person, this person, this person, and this person, that you're the common denominator in all of those interactions, that it's probably not just like all 12 people you've met misunderstand you? It's so freeing to just stop and say, maybe I'm part of the problem. And God is gracious. He forgives. It's okay to be in that position. But if that's you, repent before you rejoice. Don't go right to, I just need to rejoice in the name of Jesus. I have the spirit of glory. Of course you're going to insult me. Start by repenting. Start by saying, this is actually my fault. I'm going to stop suffering as a meddler or as an evildoer. So when the suffering comes, part of what trusting God looks like is rejoicing in the midst of the trial. The temptation is going to come to just turn down your Christianity a bit. And that's what all suffering has in common with it. When you suffer for the name of Jesus, no matter how extreme it is, or no matter how minor it is, you're going to feel that urge to just tone it down a bit so that the suffering goes away. You're going to feel what he talks about in verse 16 as being ashamed. He says, instead of being ashamed, glorify God in that name. He's saying in those moments, instead of turning down your love for Jesus, actually turn it up. Glorify God in that name even more. If you're in the position where you're being excluded from a friend group because of your love for Jesus, consider, how could I love them even more now? How could I lay down my life for them in an even crazier, more sacrificial way, even though they're insulting me right now? If you find you're unable to advance in a company because of your honesty, ask you, how could I be even more honest? How could I explain to the people around me that the reason why I'm doing this is for Jesus' sake? How could I give God glory in the middle of this situation instead of toning it down? Because I know that the spirit of glory, the better thing, I have the better thing than what I'm losing here. I have the God who made the blessings. I have the blesser himself, the spirit of glory now. I'm going to see the glory of Jesus one day. Third reason, the last one we're going to look at for why you can trust God and do good when you suffer is perhaps an unexpected one. But it's that not only is his glory present, his judgment 
is here with it. And that's what verses 17 through 19 address. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What he's saying is, if you're suffering, if you experience trial for Jesus' name, it's it's indication that the judgment of God has come. And so, in a sense, you are experiencing judgment from God in that moment. Now, that's, again, not generally a comforting thought. (laughs) Like, God's judging me. Okay, let me trust God and do good. Um, Not so much. So, you, you hear that judgment is coming. But Peter's already made clear for us in this passage the kind of judgment that we should think about this as. If you look back at verse 12, he says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. The judgment you're experiencing is not actually condemnation from God. It's, it's a testing. It's a refining. It's designed to actually grow you and to grow your rejoicing in Jesus, to grow your experience of the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you. It's painful, but it's actually designed for your good and for your redemption. Because here's what happens. If your comforts are removed, you have to trust in the God of comfort. You don't have the other substitutes to go to when God removes them. If if the love of others is being revealed, you have to trust God's love for you is enough. If your glory is diminished, you have to have a greater glory to go to. And so when judgment comes, that's what's coming to you. And yet, usually when suffering comes into our lives, we assume that God's against us. It's hard to feel like he's really for us because it hurts, and it really does. And I think that's part of why Peter begins this section in verse 12 with the word beloved. He addresses his audience, the suffering people, the ones facing trial, as beloved. He wants them to know you are loved by God. And how can you know that? How can you know that when judgment is coming into your life. When God's saying this is that, that's what the suffering is. It starts with seeing how Jesus suffered when he was on earth. Remember, we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And when Jesus suffers, he's not suffering for his own sins because he didn't have any. He's suffering for your sins. So here where it says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, it's saying judgment begins with Christians. It begins with God's people. But when Jesus is on the cross, he's saying, let judgment begin with me. Let judgment begin here. And when judgment begins with Jesus, the condemnation ends for all those who trust him. So that by the time judgment gets to Christians, by the time it gets to the people who have placed their faith in Christ, there is no condemnation left because Jesus has taken all of it. So if you're in Jesus and judgment comes to you, you know there is no condemnation in this judgment. There can't be. Judgment began with Jesus and he took your condemnation. So when judgment comes to you, it's for your good. And it's because God loves you and he wants you to put all your rejoicing and all your hope in the only one who can satisfy, in the spirit of glory and of God that rests upon you now. And when it comes... Here's what we should think of. When you experience that, here's where it should take you. What about those whose condemnation hasn't been taken? So he says, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not not obey the gospel of God? If you're experiencing suffering, 
If you're experiencing suffering as a Christian, the suffering you experience in this life is as bad as it's ever going to get for you. Jesus' glory is going to be revealed. You're going to have eternity with him. No suffering, no pain. It's all going to be over. But if you haven't trusted in Jesus, for people who haven't, the suffering in this life is actually as good as it gets because it's going to get worse when Jesus' glory is revealed, when judgment does come. And I don't say that lightly. But that's what it should drive us to think of. If suffering is happening in my life, how much worse is it going to be for those whose condemnation hasn't been taken by Jesus? And what do you do with that? What do you do with that when you realize the suffering is actually going to be worse? First, you can trust God that he's going to handle all judgment. So you don't have to. When you're insulted for the name of Jesus, you don't have to get back at these people. You don't have to defend yourself because you know God is going to come and judge all wrongdoing. But furthermore, it should give us a deep concern, a deep love for those whose condemnation hasn't been taken so that we want them to experience that, so that you want them to have their condemnation removed by trusting in Jesus. And so the question we're going to ask is, how can I live such a God-glorifying life towards this person? How can I still love them and move towards them even when they're insulting me that they will see a picture of Jesus in the way that I love them and that they will come to know him too and know the blessing of having their condemnation removed as well. We trust God to judge and that frees us just to do good. Just say, how can I keep loving this person? How can I keep moving towards them even when they insult me? Suffering in your life is not just going to be theoretical. If you follow Jesus, you will experience the costliness of that. Instead of being surprised, you can trust God in those moments. You can rejoice next to your trials, in the midst of them, in preparation for the day when you'll rejoice and be glad when Jesus' glory is revealed. You can do that now because his spirit of glory is in you. You have God himself. You can go to him in the midst of your trials, and you can trust that he will handle all judgment. May we be a people who can do good to those who wrong us, who can continue to do good even when we are insulted for the name of Jesus because we know his glory is coming, his spirit is with us, and he will handle all judgment.